And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals or any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rests on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land of your Lord. Your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's invite God to speak to us from his word. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is true and it gives life, and we pray that your truth would bring life to us today. In Christ's name, amen. One of the great Christian leaders in the history of this country was a pastor named Charles Octavius Booth. Reverend Booth was born into slavery in Alabama in 1845. He was emancipated along with the other slaves at the end of the Civil War. And as he began to minister among a population of formerly enslaved people, Reverend Booth realized that though his people had been given their freedom, they had been given very little else. They were poor, they were oppressed, they lacked land or resources. And of, of greatest concern to Reverend Booth was the fact that these formerly enslaved followers of Jesus had their entire lives been deprived of an education. They had no training. So a major focus of uh, Reverend Booth's ministry through the years was this eff his effort to lift his people up, to lift them up out of illiteracy, lift them up out of ignorance so that they could thrive as men and women who had been created in the image of God. Now perhaps, the greatest contribution that Reverend Booth made to that cause was a book of systematic theology that he wrote. And the book is titled, Plain Theology 
for plain people. It's, uh, the book is still in print. You can buy it on Amazon. It is a great book. And it is a book that was written by a pastor to help his church members see who they really were. Not, not who they were in the eyes of, you know, the Jim Crow culture that surrounded them. To help them see who they really were in the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ. You, you could say that that, that book of theology, it's, it's a book that was designed to empower people who once had been slaves to live now like men and women who were truly free. Now, I think you can make the case that the Ten Commandments were given for that same reason. The Hebrew people had been slaves, slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God delivered them from their bondage under the leadership of Moses. God brought them out of Egypt. God brought them through the Red Sea. He brought them to Mount Sinai. And then God gave his people these ten rules. Now, you'll, you'll, you'll notice that the Ten Commandments were not given to the people as a condition of their freedom. It's not like God saw the Israelites enslaved in Egypt and he came down to them there in their bondage and said, I see that you poor people are slaves. Here's an idea. I've got ten rules. If you can show me that you can keep these rules, that you're good people, then I will come and set you free from your slavery. That's not what God did. God, God saw them in their bondage. He saw them in their misery, and God set them free before they'd done anything at all for him. He just set them free out of sheer mercy, and then he gave them his law. It's important to understand that, that, that God did not give them the law so that they could earn their freedom. He gave them their freedom so that they could obey his law, right? So, so the Ten Commandments, the, these were given, just like Reverend Booth's Book of Systematic Theology, the Ten Commandments were given to empower people who once had been slaves to live now like people who are truly free. Now, Christians have discovered for generations that God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, they serve that very same purpose for us. We, we are not, do you know this? We are not saved... We are not accepted by God because of how obedient we are to his law. If that were the case, I personally would be in big trouble, right? We are saved. We are saved by grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, faith in Jesus. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So we're not saved be, by, because of how obedient we are to, to, to the commandments, right? We're saved by grace. And now, now that we are saved, now that we are free, God's commandments, they show us how to walk in that freedom. Isn't that something to think about? That God wants us to be empowered, to, to walk through life with our head held high, with a sense of dignity and confidence, and that's what the commandments are designed to do. Um, there's, there's a prayer that Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. He's praying for a group of Christians, and he prays this. Wouldn't you like someone to pray this for you? He says, I pray that you would live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him in every way. If you know Jesus, I bet that's a desire of your heart. You just want to be pleasing to Jesus. That, and, and the Ten Commandments, they, they instruct us and they empower us to do that.
So we're going to begin a 10-week series now on the Ten Commandments. And you might be thinking, oh boy, here we go. This is going to be miserable for 10 weeks, week after week. We're going to come to church and the pastors are just going to beat us up with a different commandment every week. Tell us how bad we are, how far, far we fall short of this. Listen, um, that's not our plan. But if we start to do that, all right, you remind us that the commandments were not given us to, uh, the, the commandments were not given to slaves so that they could earn their freedom right? The commandments were given to people who had been set free by grace so that, so that they could live free, right? That's what they're for. So today we're going to look at, at the first commandment, and the first commandment is a short one. You see it in verse 3. It is, you shall have no other gods before me. I just want to make two points about this commandment. First, I want to talk about what this commandment means, and then I want to talk about why the first commandment should make you very, very happy, all right? You should be so happy about this commandment. So first, what, what does it mean when the Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me? Well, it sounds kind of strange. What does it mean, before me? Is God saying, listen, you can have other gods if you want. That doesn't bother me. Just don't put them before me. Right, you can have as many deities as you want, just as long as on your list of gods, I am God number one. Is that what God means, don't have any gods before me? No. It's a strange way to translate this. The, the, the Hebrew phrase that they translate before me, this, this was a phrase that it literally meant before my face. God was saying, you shall have no other gods before my face, which was a Hebrew idiom, was a way of them saying, you shall have no other gods in my presence. So, so God was saying here, um, anywhere that I am present, I am to be your only God. The only one you serve, the only one you honor, the only one you, you trust in. Anywhere, anywhere the Lord is present, he is to be our only God. So, where is the Lord present? Let me ask it this way. Is, is the Lord present at your workplace or at your school? or whatever you're doing the other six days of the week. Is, is the Lord present there? If he's not, you're in trouble, aren't you? Right? But if the Lord is present at your school, if the Lord is present at your place of employment, he's, he's saying, this is before my presence. This is before me. I am to be God while you're at school, while you're at work. I'm to be the one you honor, the one you serve. Another question is, is the Lord present in your home? Is he present with your family? Again, if he's not, you're in trouble, right? But if he is present in your home, then he's saying, I am to be the God in your home, the one you serve and honor. So when the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me, this means, listen, anywhere the Lord is present, he is to be our only God. And since we know that God is present everywhere, he is to be our only God anywhere. Right? Now, John Calvin, in his uh, book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he, he said that the first commandment teaches us four things about how God wants us to relate to him. This, this commandment teaches us that God is to be, he's to be the only one we praise, right? He is to be the only one we rely on. He is to be the only one we cry out to in our moments of need. And he's to be the only one we thank, really thank, for every good blessing he gives us in life. So I wonder, let me ask you, do you relate to God that way? 
Is, is God the one you really get excited about? Or is it something else? Is, is, is God the one you trust in? Is, is, it, is God the one to whom you turn and cry out when you have needs? And is, is, it doesn't mean it's wrong to say thank you to someone who gives you a gift, but is ultimately God the one you thank for every good blessing in life? That's, that's what it means for, for God to be our only God. So that's what the commandment means. Pretty straightforward. Now, my second point is, do you know that the first commandment should make you want to jump up and down and shout for joy? This, is, this commandment should make you so happy. And it may not give you that impression at first. So, for example, I don't know if the Hebrew people immediately thought, wow, this is good news. We can have no other gods. It may, it, it initially, that commandment may have sounded kind of restrictive to them because in the ancient world, most people would have many, many different gods. They'd have a different god to cover every different situation they might face in life, right? For, so, for example, you would have a god of the harvest, Okay, just to, to, uh, to make sure that your farms would produce lots of food. And here, here was the Lord saying, sorry, you are not allowed to have a God of the harvest. Oh, man, that's a bummer. And, and you'd, you'd probably have a God, a God or a goddess of fertility to make sure that your families would have lots of babies. And here is the Lord saying, sorry, you are not allowed to have a goddess of fertility. Again, he's taking something away from us. Or, or ancient people would have a god of rain to make sure that you'd always have water and the land and water to, to drink. And God is saying, sorry, no rain god for you. And, or you might, you might have a god of warfare, a god to protect you and give you power so you're not invaded by other nations. And, and the Lord here is saying, sorry, you are not allowed to have a god of war. So this may have sounded very restrictive to them. God is telling us, we can't have all these other gods. And, and the Hebrew people might have been saying, why? Why won't the Lord allow us to have these other gods? Doesn't, doesn't he care if we have enough food to eat? Doesn't he care if, we, if our, 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 our married couples can have babies? Doesn't, doesn't he care if we have water to drink? Does he care if we're invaded by our enemies? And, and do you think the Lord cares? Listen, by giving this commandment to them, by saying, I am the only God you can ever have, Basically, the Lord was saying to them, the, the reason you cannot have any of these other gods is because you don't need any of these other gods. When God, when God is saying, I'm the only God you can have, he's saying, listen, I'm the only God you need. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. God, God is saying, just trust me. I will take care of your harvest. Trust me. I will take care of your families. Trust me. I will protect you in war. Trust me. I, I, will, give, I will water your land with abundant rains. So God is saying, listen, the reason I am to be your only God is because I'm the only God you will ever, ever need. So I, I would say it this way. Implicit in this demand for absolute loyalty is a promise of God's undying love. So far from being a harsh, restrictive command, God says, I have to be first in your life, and that's an order. No, listen, far from being harsh or restrictive, the first commandment, do you, you realize this? It is a declaration of God's love for you. Now, let, let me explain, because I'm not sure that's clear. Let's, let's imagine, imagine you and a friend are having dinner in a restaurant, okay? You both look across the room, and you notice that on the other side of the dining room, there is a young couple eating together. As you're both watching them, the man stands up, 
He gets down on one knee in front of the woman. He gazes up into her eyes, and he pulls a diamond ring out of his pocket. You say to your friend, isn't that so romantic? That's so beautiful. He's asking her to marry him. And your friend says, that's not beautiful. That's disgusting. That is one of the most self-centered things I've ever seen in my life. And you say to your friend, what do you mean? And your friend says, do you realize what that man is asking of that woman? He is asking her to stand before a whole room with their family and friends and to make a solemn vow that for the rest of her life, he will be the number one man in her life. He's asking to be number one. He's asking her to promise that she will love him, cherish him, honor him, keep herself only for him to, as long as they both will live. Isn't that so self-centered of him? Now, what would you say to your friend? You'd say, friend, I guess, you know, technically what you're saying is correct, but I do not think you understand the way love works. You, you, you say, listen, by asking that woman, that's what marriage, a proposal of marriage is asking another person to put you first for the rest of their life. By asking that woman to put him first for the rest of her life, the man was just implicitly promising he would do the same thing for her. I mean, if you ask someone to marry you, you're implying that you will marry them, right? So, so implicit in this request for her absolute loyalty, the man was promising his absolute love. Does that make sense? It's the same way, only better with this first commandment. When, the, when, when, when God demands to be the only God we ever have, he is implicit, implicitly promising, I'm the only God you will ever need. So by demanding our absolute loyalty, he is promising undying love for us. So when we struggle with, to keep the first commandment, and can we just be honest, we all struggle with this. John, John Calvin said, he said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. Like everybody struggles to, uh, we're constantly putting things ahead of God, right? When we struggle with this, um, and, and maybe, all right, maybe your struggle is you, you find yourself sometimes putting your job or your career ahead of God. Or you put your money ahead of God. Or maybe you find yourself putting your family ahead of God or putting sexual pleasure ahead of God and his, his plan for your life. When we, when we struggle to keep the first commandment, I would say this, our problem is not really so much um, a matter of disobedience. It's not like people wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to make an idol today. I'm gonna... No, it's not a matter of disobedience. It's primarily a, it's an issue of unbelief. I'll explain. Let's listen. Maybe the reason you put your career, you find yourself constantly putting your career goals ahead of God's call on your life. Could it be that at some level you're not really trusting God that he can give you more significance and more fulfillment and more meaning in life than all than all the professional success in the world? He can do that for you. Do you trust him? Or, or, or maybe the, the reason you find yourself putting your money ahead of God is because on, on some level, do you really believe, listen, do you believe that God can keep you safe in the future better than the best retirement plan anyone ever had? He can. He will. Or, or maybe the reason you, you put your family ahead of God. You just feel like, if I don't have the perfect family, I can't be happy. Listen, do you really believe that you are already a member of the perfect family? You've been adopted by God. 
You're his son, his daughter. You will always have a place where you belong. You will always be, be surrounded by love. You're in God's family now. So when, when we find ourselves putting other things ahead of God, I, at some level I think we've stopped believing. He wants to be the only God I have because he's the only God I will ever need. He will, he will keep me safe. He will give me significance. He will satisfy the deep longings of my heart. He will do this. I don't need anything else to do it. it. It's a matter of unbelief. So if that's true, the question we ought to ask is, what would help me, what would help me believe? I mean, really believe that God is the only God I need in life. Now, for the ancient Hebrews, what would have helped them is, is what is said, what the Lord says in verse 2. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Isn't that something he, he reminded them of that before he gave them any command? And, and it must have just been designed to help them. So, for example, let's say um, it's getting late in the harvest season and there hasn't been much rain, and one Hebrew man says to his neighbor, you know what? <laughs> We're in trouble if it doesn't start raining. And, and his friend says, yeah, you know what? I think, why don't we go talk to those Philistines and buy one of their rain gods? And his neighbor says, we don't need a rain god. We have Yahweh. We have the Lord. Don't you remember what he said? He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. If he did that for us, he loves us. And, and, if, he, and if he could bring us out of Egypt, he's powerful. We don't need a rain god. We can trust him. You see how that statement would help them? Or, or maybe there's an enemy army coming to attack and they're starting to get nervous and say, oh, I wish we had one of those Amorite war gods that would really help us right now. Can we get one of those? And, and someone stands up and says, we don't need one of those. Don't you remember what Yahweh said? He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. If he loved us enough when we were in slavery, he's going to love us now. If he could deliver us from Pharaoh, these armies are no problem. We can trust him. So you see what would help them just to trust He's the only God I will ever need was this memory of what he had done for them. So that would have really helped those ancient Hebrews. Now the problem is, we're not ancient Hebrews, <laughs> right? I mean, God never took me out of Egypt. I've never been to Egypt in my life. He, he never did that for me, so I guess we're in trouble. What can help us believe? Well, you know the answer. Through, through the gospel, God has declared something far better to us than those ancient Hebrews ever heard. They, they would have been amazed if they had heard that. Through, to us, God doesn't just say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Here's what he says. He's saying this to you, believer. I am the Lord your God who loved you so much he gave his one and only son to die on the cross for you. Do you think I love you? Oh, I love you. And I am, the, I am the Lord your God, who when your Savior was dead in the tomb, raised him and brought him to life again. Do you think I'm strong enough to handle your problem right now? Yes, I'm strong enough. You see, the gospel message, I am the Lord your God, who died for you, who rose for you, who sent his son for you. That message, if you just can find a way to let the Holy Spirit remind you of that again and again, that just empowers you to say, you know what? I don't need any other God. I don't need any other God. I don't need the approval of people. I don't need success in my career. I don't need money in the bank. I don't need the perfect family. I don't need any of this. If those things are blessings in my life, fine. But they're not to be my gods. I have, I already, isn't it wonderful? I already have the only God I will ever need. And that's why he made this proposal. He said, make me your one and only because I love you. Let's pray together. 
We thank you for loving us enough to free us and loving us even more to give us your law, to show us how to walk in that freedom. Would you, by your Holy Spirit and by your gospel, give us grace to do just that for the sake of Christ. Amen.